Welcome to the Hard Yard Rugby League Podcast. This is episode 10 and we are dedicated to those who do the hard yards in the game of rugby league, namely the fans, the junior players, uh, anybody who's not getting paid much money to play, um, officials, volunteers and the like. I'm your host Lee Addison, this is a podcast for you wherever you are in that rugby league world and if you're doing the hard yards. I... And we are your advocate, we are your supporter, we are your voice, and we'll always tell it as we see it. And where appropriate, pull no punches. How are you doing? I'm Lee, and uh, welcome to the Hard Yard Rugby League podcast. I'm sure wherever you are listening to this right now, you're starting to get to that point where your final series will be kicking in. Maybe you... Uh, are coaching a team, maybe you're an official at a club, maybe you're just a player, but um, it's getting to the pointy end. Um, since I last spoke to you, I actually won a grand final with my school team, which was good, um, and it's a great feeling, and it's it's the sort of things that people play football and coach football for, I think. I, I get a lot of pleasure and a lot of uh, enjoyment out of seeing people fulfil their potential and, and maybe more, more than what they dreamed of. Just remember that if you're doing the hard yards in rugby league, the chances are that you're helping somebody potentially re- reach that dream. Um, and just let that keep you going if you're feeling a little bit drained. If you need some assistance, if you need some guidance as a coach, a player, an administrator or an S&C coach, we encourage you to go to our website, rugbyleaguecoach.com.au. Um, there's over 500 videos and plans on there for coaches, players, S&C coaches and administrators. We've got loads of deals on there. It's actually cheaper if you buy it for a year. Um, I can even work out a lifetime membership price for you if you like, so we're going to launch that on the site soon. And uh, um, think of it like your online rugby league textbook. I did a Google search of rugby league textbooks for coaching uh, only yesterday um, from recording this. And honestly, I think the most recent one I saw was 1982, Phil Larder's book. Um, You can all access fitness training, skill training, recovery, diet plans, skills all that kind of thing, uh, weights um, on, on the website, and I really encourage you to go there. And there's stuff that you can look at for free too, so rugbyleaguecoach.com.au. Also, just want to let you know that we've played around with the format of the podcast again. This week, it's just going to be me and Phil Kaplan, and we talk for about 45 minutes, um, which is normal. We, we, he never shuts up, that Phil. Not my fault. Um, <laughs> um, but before then, it's my opening comments. couple of things just to talk about briefly on the uh, opening comments today. Uh, firstly, as I record this podcast, um, there's some media from the Sydney media, that is the Daily Telegraph, saying that um, Queensland teams have just had one of their worst weekends um, in the NRL, the Titans, the Broncos and the Cowboys. Um, looks like all three of those teams may miss out on the top eight playoffs. They point to the fact that the Origin team has lost the last two series um, and has lost its aura, if you like. Uh, I'm obviously familiar with what goes on in Queensland uh, at the grassroots level. Um, And I've got to say that there's times when you wonder if uh, 
they 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 struggle to see beyond some of these administrators struggle to see beyond their own backyard. I'll give you an example. There seems to be a lot of tinkering with the, whether it's under eighteens, under nineteens, or seventeens um, and twenties, or seventeens and nineteens, and uh, participant participation rates in some key areas are are really struggling. Uh, but I've received phone calls this week about that uh, under eighteens girls competition that we spoke about in earlier podcasts and basically from what I can gather um, a team that has had many buys um, has got a route or a better route to a grand final and a team that has played a lot more games has got a tougher game um, to get to the grand final the, the people who spoke to me were quite emotional so I didn't get a clear read on it but basically when when stakeholders of the game are exasperated with decisions and don't know why these things are happening, the chances are that, that somebody's got it pretty wrong somewhere or not using common sense. Um, I can list several things um, that don't make sense um, that, that I've come across. And um, I think sometimes administrators, not just in Queensland or... or it could be anywhere. Um, tend to tend to think too deeply about things, whereas going for the most simple option would 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 make sense. So, for example, um, uh, giving uh, a team that's finished first an advantage over a team that finished fifth, for example, or uh, um, and, and stuff like that, or, or when it comes to registrations and transfers and things like this. And uh, I just feel that until um, an area such as Queensland really addresses all these things and they're always going to be up and down in their performances um, you've got to beg the question if it wasn't for Thurston and Cronk and the like would they have won 11 straight um, were they freaks um, Would the fact did the fact that Melbourne Storm uh, had so much to do with Cronk, Slater and Smith uh, have a lot to do with with Queensland's dominance there, or are we reading too much into it? Is the fact that that Queensland um, have lost a few games at, at first grade level and uh, at origin level, is it, is it being uh, read too much into there? I will say this, that I think um, I've been involved in the game a lot for a long time and I, I tend to hear many negative comments in Queensland about administration. Um, that doesn't mean they're right, and that doesn't mean the Queensland administration is wrong. But ultimately, if if people are complaining about a lack of common sense, then then there's something wrong. Uh, so maybe they need to take a look at that. Um, secondly, um, this last week has been stories of a fight at an A-grade game in the northern beaches of Sydney. Um, and all the way on the other side of the world... Fans of Warrington and Catalans in the Super League have been involved in a brouhaha in the grandstands. I think the thing that I'd like to say there is, <sighs> with specific reference to the one in, in, in France, don't panic. It's not endemic in rugby league. Society has a problem, not rugby league per se. Rugby league tends to be a safe sport to go and watch. Um, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, the answer, though, is if you're going to have games that kick off in the evening to satisfy TV, 
then all the bars in that area are going to be chock-a-block with people um, drinking and they're not going to be in the best shape by the time they get to the game. Um, soccer had hooligan issues in the past and probably still has them or is on the brink of having them at any point. They move kickoffs of big games early so that people don't get a skimful inside them. Games are well policed and stewarded. Uh, I think people do things that they think they can get away with. These people who fight at games tend to be cowards, I find, because they're doing it in a safe environment where nothing too bad tends to happen. Um, and they can always hide behind somebody else in a fight. Um, at the same time, uh, there was footage of a tube fight between Manchester City and Liverpool fans. So it's not a rugby league problem. Let's just get more police and more and more stewards there. Let's get cameras on these places and maybe liaise with the local community and make sure that the bars responsibly serve alcohol um, to to solve some problems or see what you can do about kickoff times. Um, on the other side of the world, the the A grade uh, brawl on the northern beaches, um, bands of ten years look like being handed down. Um, again, it's easy to get over. Um, negative about some of these things but I will say this and I'll link it back to what I said about Queensland one of the big problems we have is the way referees are treated the way they are treated impacts on recruitment of referees um, I've seen games in Queensland where 14 year olds have refereed games involving players who now play in the NRL only two years later um, and it's not good it's not safe I've seen games involving high-profile players where the two touch judges have just been kids with a T-shirt, uh, not a flag. Um, and quite often these games spill over because of the officiating and they say an, in, an incompetent offici official. I'm not saying the referee's to blame. What I'm, what I'm saying is that the whole culture of the whole thing is to blame. So we need to eradicate sort of abuse of officials or... Um, make it a, a better environment for officials to official in. We can't do anything without officials, so we need to look after them. Uh, the more referees we have, the more that there will be a clamour for the top positions. And like any development system, the more you have at the bottom, then the cream that rises to the top is better. So the people who are refereeing A-grade games end, end up being better. A good referee and, and supporting officials can tend to de deal and, and uh, predict anything that's going to erupt. Um, and I'm not saying it's a referee's fault at all. I must stress this, but... Uh, and I wasn't at the game, but the chances are it started... The brawl that ensued probably erupted uh, gradually throughout the game and are just getting worse and worse. Um, and then the other thing is get videos on games, make sure everyone's accountable for what they do. Um, and again, let's remember, society has probably got a bit of a problem. People are getting a little bit more aggressive again and uh, some people are blaming it on pol politicians around the world, but... Ultimately, I think, I think a few people are chanting around. So let's not panic rugby league. Let's just get to the problem, um, make sure it doesn't happen again, and let's look for the reasons of why it's happening. I understand that was very vague about a lot of things there in the opening comments. Well, that's because I'm not really criticising anyone. I'm just trying to say, you know, come up with some generalisations because... 
definitely where I am in Queensland, no particular organisation, but there just seems to be uh, so many exasperated people about administration of the game and um, as I've said before, the most important people in this game are the players and the stakeholders that are involved with the players um, and we're there to serve them. And if people are exasperated, it means there's not much common sense being shown nine times out of ten. If you show common sense, then people tend to understand. They might not like the decision you make, but they will tend to understand. Anyway, going from that to somebody who talks loads of sense and loads of common sense. Phil Kaplan, and he's got the full floor today, and I was talking to him recently. I have on the line Phil Kaplan from Leeds that I believe has stopped raining. Um... Talking of raining, Phil, um, <laughs> I have had messages raining in to oh, say like that it. you and I should do a podcast on our own after the last Hard Yard Rugby League podcast, episode 13. Lee and, Which Lee is the, who, and Phil Kaplan. Who's the straight man? <laughs> <laughs> How do you like the sound of coffee with Kaplan? <laughs> well, coffee would be appropriate. That is my drink of choice. Well, it would be for you in the morning, but what do you think I'm drinking at seven o'clock on a or six o'clock on a Friday night? I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna drink coffee, am I, mate? So we'll have to no. address that. Um, but can we can we tell the podcast listeners that we might try something at the end of this current series? I, I think we should. If if there's demand, we the, the least we should do is try and fulfil it. And I'm thinking what we'll do is I'll ask you a few things about England. You ask me a few things about Australia and. See where oh, we the, go good, and... the good listeners can send us some questions if they want anything can, specific answering. Yeah, <clears throat> um, I've got a question for you. Um, I've been, yeah, as you know, I'm a I'm an Englishman abroad, and I've been looking at the TV. And Boris is getting about two billion for for a no deal Brexit. Well, at the same time, I'm checking my Twitter, and the Rugby Football League is recording a huge loss that is in the. Hundreds of millions. What can you what can you tell me about that, and why can't we have some of that two billion? <laughs> yes, we found the magic money tree that didn't exist. Um, yeah, <laughs> but it doesn't grow in the gardens of Red Hall. It would appear. Yeah, the, the RFL have announced a um, a loss of three hundred twenty seven thousand pounds, which for a, a big minority sport is a large amount of money. Yeah. Um, there was a single line um, that was signed off at the, the recent AGM saying that it's primarily to do with a lack of ticket sales at the Challenge Cup final, which you remember Catalan won last year and there was a, yeah. a crowd of around 50,000. So, so they're saying that the shortfall uh, predominantly accounts for the loss. I, I'm not sure if you do the sums that actually adds up, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think it is a little bit more uh, complicated, and I think you might have to add in things like uh, severance payment to senior executives. But it's a oh, one. Oh, 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 oh. And that, and that affects the hard yards, doesn't it, Phil? Like, um, why should people at the grassroots be um, dealing with that? Why? Why should? Why should they be paying for that? <laughs> like, it's. Um, of course, it affects the hard yards, doesn't it, Phil? Absolutely. Well, and I think the, the other thing that is going to be interesting in the next two or three years to come is that the RFL are now projecting profits of approximately £200,000 to eventually wipe out the debt. The problem mm. that they're going to have is a lot of their income comes from 
Sport England, um, who set pretty stringent financial targets on things yeah. like participation. And, and we've spoken about this before, but there's yeah. an initiative running at the moment school called Sky Try, which Sky Sports are putting the money up for. And, and over a long period of time, they've put in a significant amount of money to try and get more kids, mainly under seven level, playing the game. And that is about to run out as part of the end of the current television deal. Um, I think Sport England as well are, are, are quite happy with what Rugby League are doing at the moment as regards variant um, uh, Rugby League. You know, women's game is is clearly um, that the participation rates are going up. We saw the most wonderful Women's Challenge Cup final last Saturday as part of a triple header at Bolton. Who um, won that? Uh, Leeds won it uh, 16-10 against Castleford who up until that time had been unbeaten this season had, had nilled Leeds in the league and went in as strong favourites it, it was a repeat of last year's final but the quality of the game um, and you can see the highlights on uh, the BBC website if you're interested And the girls don't get paid over there do they mate? They're, no they're all um, amateur um, and I think one of the things that came out of that final was that the, the standard is so high and we're only at the germination of the Super League clubs taking on these teams that it has to become at least semi-professional in the near future. Well, all the agents are climbing... Oh, not all the agents. Are, a section of the player agents are clambering around the girls now over here and women because they can see a little bit of a, a cash tree emerging because obviously... There's a women's NRL over in Australia, and um, yep. um, I I am at a school where there's a burgeoning girls rugby league academy. And I, th I think, think the important thing here is that we're building up to the 2021 World Cup, and uh, a little bit like it was in 2017, but clearly. I think there is more of a, a of a definite agenda that they're, they're going to be seen to be running alongside each other, um, and I think that the the World Cup 2021 will have seen the commercial imperative of pushing the women's in the wheelchair game. Um, I think well, I'm going to go about, back to the funding a little bit later, and because you mentioned 2021, um, go into that. Um, what have you heard in England, and has there been any bounce back from anywhere about? the Festival of World Cups in 2021, including the Emerging Nations, the Women's, the Wheelchair, etc., etc. Where are you at over in England with that? Yeah, I think there's been a formal press release from um, the Rugby League International Federation asking for expressions of interest Correct. for the Correct. Emerging Nations and the, and the festivals. So we've yeah. definitely got already planned in uh, men's, women's and wheelchair. Um, the, the nations have been announced. The draw will be sometime in November. That That's going ahead. Um, there's talk as well, a PDRL, uh, which will be based in the Warrington area. Um, Adam Hill's a famous Australian comedian who, who's uh, got a very high profile over here and actually plays for the Warrington team, is, is behind that. And I, I think that will definitely happen. But we're also yep. looking now at um, emerging nations, which will be fantastic. But again, yep. that will be down to who pays the bill. Um, police, student. Um, and I don't think it'll all be at the same time. I think it'll start sort of probably June, July time in 2021. And uh, there'll be the festivals leading up to the main World Cups, which will be October, November time. So if we can get this um, agreed well enough in advance, then it's going to be a massive boost for the sport over here. And we'll, it, we'll, we'll be inclusive, which is a word that we like to use, but you could actually define it if we have all these festivals of World Cup. I saw... Um, the police one and the, the defence one 
uh, in 2013. And and again, it was only you know the three nations you would expect. Um, but I think there there is scope, and and that if we're giving ourselves an 18 month lead in, which is something that rugby league is not really well renowned for, then it it could be very successful. The, the, this two years advance notice of a potential emerging nations World Cup. Bear in mind, as things stand, I'm a current test coach of an emerging nation. To yeah. have two years to think about that is huge. It's it's like opening your Christmas presents on on Christmas Day. Um, I will say this though: that a few Southern Hemisphere nations have been in touch with myself and and other stakeholders in the game, and there was an email sent from the Southern Hemisphere to the Northern Hemisphere saying that the timing of the emerging nations potential tournament might not be great. I'm sorry I'm stirring this I'm steering this conversation to the emerging nations away. Um, no, it's fine. The, that's where the, the hard yards are done to be fair. That's right. The 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 timing of it might not be great because of um peak prices in the summer in the Northern Hemisphere, because yep. of trying to get players away from their clubs in Australia and other places in the middle of the season. Because you've got to remember most rugby league seasons are played at the same time now, aren't they? March to to September kind of thing. And yeah, um, it's it's going to be the the end of the season. So I would imagine it wouldn't impinge. To, I, I I suppose it 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 could uh, mean some players missing grand finals. But the the important thing is that what what do we want out of an emerging nation? Because uh, you'll know as well as I do that a lot of the the European nations have an Australian arm. Now, is is this a chance to say? Um, because the the World Cup will be in the Northern Hemisphere, that the bulk of those nations will be domestic players from uh, you know leagues in Turkey and Greece yeah. and Poland, well, I, well, and, and we could adorn them with the odd heritage player. Um, and then when the the World Cup reverts back to the Southern Hemisphere, we do it the other way around. I I said on the last podcast, mate, that you weren't part of because you were part of two podcasts ago. I said that because originally. I saw June and July, right? Or July, maybe. Yeah, yeah. So I just said that as one door closes, another one opens, that it allows domestic players to mm. make that trip. Obviously, the cost associated for a Polish domestic player to fly over to, in- to England are a lot less than an Australian heritage player. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so that was my, my thought process behind that. I think what I'd like to ask you now is your memory of emerging nations World Cups. Yeah. I remember the 1995 one like it was yesterday. <laughs> um, I was the grand total of about 15 years old, 16 years old, something like that. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And I remember seeing USA and Scotland and yep. Cook Islands and... Ireland and thinking, how the bloody hell are they going to get a rugby league team together? And it had an impact on me and it had an impact on my father and friends around us. And I remember we did one in the year 2000 and my great coaching mentor, Vinnie Webb, won it with Great Britain Barla. Now, I was thinking to myself that the game probably messed up by putting a Great Britain Barla side in there. right? Um, But... I was so proud of my, the guy I call my Uncle Vinny, you know, like, because uh, he won the tournament. Um, 
this will be the first emerging nations World Cup in England since the year two thousand, won't it? Yes, what? I think the, the the important thing you picked on there is that, um, and again, relating it to another tournament which uh, was similar in its development nature. You, you may not have come across the York Nines, but no, originally, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, originally that was open to predominantly development teams. Yeah. Um, and it was a wonderful festival which drew a lot of people from a lot of different places who just wanted the opportunity to to play the game. Um, but once that gained a tiny bit of kudos, it was then almost more important to win it and put, in inverted commas, professional teams in there. Um, yeah. And we lost the essence of what it was very quickly. I think the same thing happened over here with the emerging nations, that 1995 was, was, was pretty glorious because we got to to see the germination of America. We got to see the potential that, that Russia could be, who were then elevated into the, the full 2000 World Cup. I can remember Correct. going to see a doubleheader in Northampton, um, which again was a development area in itself. So not only were you seeing, I think, America play Scotland, um, but you were seeing it in a place where you wouldn't normally see yep. rugby league being played. And there, and there were a couple of thousand there which might not sound like a lot but to get a crowd of that size in an area where there is no history of rugby league that was really important but in the yeah. way that we have a track record of not doing we didn't build on that so that when the yeah. 2001 came around to have any team in that was a, a performance-based team and and i get exactly what you say about vinny he's done so much good work in with so many clubs in you know in so many guises that to have success is fine but there's no way there should have been a, a british amateur rugby league association team in an emerging nations because it, mm. it's emerging they, they might have been incorporated in 1974 but there's been community rugby league ever since the game was founded in 18 95 so you've you've already destroyed the parameters by which you're calling an emerging nation yeah. i think one that we had in australia um in 2017 well 2018 on the back of the, the 2017 world cup that was more like getting to the principle of what an emerging nation should be and i think it's really important that in the women's world cup um the, the draw well the, the nations included of which were announced a couple of weeks ago that we've got a nation like brazil because to me, the emerging nations through the work done by Latin Heat, uh, through having Chile in the World Cup qualifying for men, now having Brazil in the women's, that's to me what emerging nations is about. It's yeah. about spreading the footprint, but giving people a chance to say, if you get it right, there's, a, there's actually a pathway. We like to give uh, you know, kids a pathway. Well, let's give yeah. these nations a pathway as well. And um, I, when, Last time I was in Australia... Um, which was for the World Club Challenge when Leeds played Melbourne a couple of years ago. Before I flew home on the Sunday, I went to watch Hungary play Malta, um, which was a predominantly uh, heritage two-based teams. Now, it was, it was a really great game, and I really enjoyed it um, at St Mary's. But I just thought, what relevance does this have to either Hungary or Malta? How is it going to improve the number of people that play in their respective nations? So I think all of that comes under... What do we mean by an emerging nation? How do we get more people playing in the country that bears that name? Blake Austin, for example, who we spoke about last time and could be a heritage player for England in the Nines or Great Britain on tour. You know, he's played for Portugal in the past, but I don't mm. know of any rugby league currently being played under the name of Portugal. So I think the brief for the emerging nations has to be um, what do we want out of it? Do we want, just want people to play with a, a shirt on that represents their heritage? Are we, are we seriously trying to look at nations like 
Turkey, who I know are doing a, a lot of really good work in the Middle East at the moment. Um, more and more people playing at domestic level. What do we do with Holland and Germany, who are long-established rugby league-playing nations, but and, and Scandinavia, but clearly aren't at a level to compete at full World Cup? So, again, I, I think if we get it right, we get the balance right, um, we, we get the idea that it's about participation far more than um, excellence, we could have a really good tournament. I, I come from the angle where... I believe that <clears throat> you've got to create a dream. So yes. if if you want to play for a nation in an emerging nations world cup or a full world cup it's sometimes very hard to envisage unless you actually see that team running around in the tournament. And I was involved with the USA yep in the 2013 world cup and it's no um secret that we had a lot of heritage players absolutely and and we had a lot of players who could qualify for america through american samoa now first thing i'd like to say is that that is just the way of the world now people have yep. parents and grandparents from different places secondly what that did for talk and chat and publicity around the USA Rugby League team when they were quite successful in the 2013 World Cup has been unparalleled since then. Yeah, well we've got, As you I mean, know, last night we saw Beretta Farimo playing for Hull FC, Corey yeah. Mason is going to Wembley with Sheffield in a month's time. Mm -hmm. um, I think you look at Jamaica who are the first Caribbean nation to have qualified for a full World Cup. There's a lot of work going on now for Jamaica playing the England Knights in uh, October at Headingley. There's a lot of engagement talked about with local Jamaican communities in England. I, I think that there is massive potential for an emerging nations to provide those kind of... I think you used the word dream, that's, that's absolutely right. To, to be aspirational for people yeah. to say, I want to be, you know, I, I want to be part of this. I don't need to be part of a tier one nation anymore. I can reclaim my heritage and spread the sport of rugby league through emerging nations. And, and if one day I get good enough to get called up for the, for the country that I was born in or that I've assimilated into, that's fine as well. But we need to give the maximum number of people the chance to play the game. And, and, and I, I'm, I'm sort of torn between do you allow a national team to come in until they've got a domestic league or do you form a domestic league on the back of seeing a national team play? And I, and I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. I think in certain I, places, the domestic like competition will start. have at least one tournament. Yes. And then by the time the next tournament comes around, you've got to have your your team, your, your competition in place. Like that, I, that I also think that we, we've it. missed an opportunity with nines because we've sort of announced that there's a Nines World Cup, but we haven't included any emerging nations. Now, to me, the stepping stone to be a full nation in, a, in, a, in an emerging nations World Cup might be for, for example, and again, I pick one completely at random, Serbia, who are doing some, some good things domestically. If you've got a Nines team playing in a, a World Cup in Australia and you only need to take a squad of maybe 
team players and you might have a couple of heritage or you might be able to persuade a Travojevic brother to play for you if they're not playing for Australia. I think that would have a massive advantage. But what we've done is we've said, oh, we'll have a World Cup nines. We won't have any qualifying. We'll just pick the nations we want to play and we will have another one in two years' time and see how that goes. To me, that that's a commercial decision. It's not a for the betterment of international rugby league decision. Agreed. I'd just like to change the subject to Canfield, but link it in in, in, in a certain way. Um, what you're talking about there quite a lot is Australians uh, popping up in places. When you talk about heritage players, quite often it's Australians who have a parentage or grandparentage from somewhere else. Yep. Um, but English people are actually using the Australian system to their advantage lately as well, aren't they, with the influx of of English players into Australia. And offline last week, we ended up having a conversation, didn't we, about the potential for a Perth club to be a little bit left field in 21st century, didn't we? We did on the basis of the fact that uh, there seems to be a greater willingness for expansion in the Southern Hemisphere than uh, we've seen previously. Um, mm. you, you would ask, how do they do that to get maximum commercial revenue out of it? And of course, one of the things is obviously to to take games to, to Fiji, which uh, the Prime Minister's 13 are doing, um, to perhaps take an NRL game into maybe China. Uh, I know that Canberra have got some very close sponsorship links over there um, mm. and exploit it that way. But but why not? And I think that this may even have been a, the germination of an idea from Steve Mascord many years ago was if you get enough top level English players playing in the NRL rather than have them spread amongst the clubs, why not keep them all together, if you like, as an as an exiles team? Yeah. Um, so you'd have an extra team in the NRL, your, your 17th team, or if you wanted to, to make it 18 and bring in another one as well. And you would perhaps cite it in a place where there is already a latent support for the game, but also a lot of um, British people who perhaps would, would get behind the idea of the, 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 the team is one of their own. And, and the logical place for that at the moment would be Perth, where we've seen the, uh, the, the, the state of origin taken and be very, very successful in, in terms of the numbers that, that played we've, we saw a, a double header world cup game there in 2017 that involved um wales and ireland and england and again was very well supported so you could imagine couldn't you and i, I think at the moment yeah. while speaking josh hodgson is playing his 100th game for canberra um, wow. if we got um let's say 25 quality um english stroke british players over in the nrl instead of Callum Watkins playing at the Gold Coast Titans. It would be those 25 are contracted in some way um, to play for a Perth-based team. Now, the decision then becomes, does that team play in the NRL? Or because of modern transport these days and, and the fact that maybe even the mould has been broken a little bit by having Toronto in League One and then the Championship over here, that they could be part of Super League because the... Mm. the Flight is only eighteen hour only eighteen hours direct, but but it, it's not insurmountable at the moment. And you can imagine a Perth team perhaps playing I don't know um, a month's worth of fixtures at home, and then a similar amount away from home. It, 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 we're at a really important crossroads. You could almost make the case, and again, um, I have been told on many an occasion that. Uh, I live on Fantasy Island, and I'm quite happy to admit to that. <laughs> this idealistic tower at the top of the hill. And um, 
what what do we want to do with um, the fledgling attempt to spread the the sport on a weekly basis to North America and Canada? Well, if you were to say at some point there is a, there is a person sat in a a padded cell going, we could have four teams down the eastern coast of um, America and Canada. So that might be your Toronto's and your New York's and Boston and Philadelphia. Those four teams would play in Super League. You would have four teams down the western side, your sort of San Francisco's maybe and Los Angeles. And uh, obviously Florida doesn't fit with either of those. But but they would play, you know, allied maybe to the New South Wales Rugby League or the Queensland yeah. Rugby League. You've got a model there that you would take a number of years to develop that would tie in perhaps to what we've already talked about with emerging nations and how to strengthen the likes of Canada, who at the moment are an emerging nation. And, and create the dream, put the dream well, in front of them. Yeah. And why not have, you know, that uh, even speculatively at this stage, a blueprint that says um, rugby league will be a global game on a weekly basis at the moment. We're you, you and I are still watching a sport that has 800 full-time professional players yeah. split in two competitions. And we wonder yeah. why some people don't deem us to be, excuse me, a major sport. Well, that's the reason. How are you going to get more people playing? I, I, I just noticed this week that obviously a, a, a lot of the Super League clubs didn't play because it was the semi-final of the Challenge Cup. And yeah. Salford who don't have as many resources as a lot of other teams, took their development week over to Ireland. Now, the great thing about that is that's <coughs> a potential revenue of, of talent. But at the back of that, it's all very well going for a week and having your training camp over there and inviting some of the best players that are playing in the domestic league to be part of what you're doing and having players like Tyrone McCarthy, who are Irish internationals over there spreading the word. But what are we as a sport doing about maybe at some point having a a semi-professional team in, in Ireland. And how would that help Ireland as an emerging nation? Or, uh, you know, Ireland is still in the qualifiers for the full World Cup. You, you mentioned 2000 earlier, and, and I go back to a game that I saw at Headingley in the quarterfinal of the, the full World Cup. And that was England against Ireland, one of the best games of that much well, month, 2000 World Cup. Yep, about 15,000 people at Headingley. That's After right, 60 there. minutes, you couldn't tell who was going to win it. I was sat near you, if not next to you. To well, there you go. Yeah. That's probably why I remember it so well. <laughs> and the, the Ireland team that played that day was full of superstars. You know, Terry O'Connor, Barry McDermott, Terry O'Connor. It even had Luke Rickardson, you know, that had right. heritage players in it. Yeah. Now, the fact is that that was a great Ireland team that reached the quarterfinal of the World Cup. And, and actually, Ireland now, for all the great work that people like Mark Aston have put in and that uh, the Irish Domestic League are trying to do, they've gone backwards in in that almost 20 years since. And that's but, where we've down. That's where, that's where we've got the problems. Going, going back to Perth, I would say... You also open it up to the heritage English because um, there's so many. <laughs> yeah, Blake Austin, uh, you know, would be a perfect example. He could go to that club. That that can be the retirement home for some of these players, rather than absolutely. The and I think, I think, I keep saying this on my podcast because I'm a, I'm a, I have a worldview, right, Phil? Yeah. Um, I I like the world. I, I think to myself, Phil Kaplan, my mate, lives in England, so what? I'll just wait till later in the day to call him. That, that's literally our thing. 
right? Yeah, yeah. And I think we are blessed to have two competitions on each side of the world. Sorry, yeah. one competition on each side of the world, so two competitions. Yeah. The NFL split. They were forced to split into two conferences at a certain point in history. Is it still two or is it three now or whatever? I think it's but two. Way, I think it is, is two. Either way, they still have a Super Bowl. Now, I believe, and I've said this before, and I might have even said it with you, and I'll say it again, that NRL needs Super League and Super League needs NRL. Yeah, 100%. And, and the World Club Challenge that we play in February should be played at the end of the year. And it should be the Super Bowl. And we should be the same competition. Now, whether yeah. that means they play intertwined, and I think that's what was... Um, uh, chucked around, if you like, with the World Club Challenge in 1997. I think they just went too fast down that avenue. Yeah. Of having every team play every team or whatever it was. I think that just exposed how far behind we were yeah. over here. But as a concept, it had something to it. And there but was our some top team can always compete with, with the NRL top team. The well, I think team can always compete with the NRL top team. You you even start, I think, with a, a rebranding of the whole sport. So the NRL is now an established brand. And for me, the important letters of NRL are RL. So I think you have NRL in the Southern Hemisphere and you have ERL in the Northern Hemisphere, which would be European yeah. rugby. Yeah. And that you've got to bring the two together because I don't think we can exist separately in the future i think at the moment all of the money clearly is in the nrl but even they've acknowledged that television rights income is going to go down for every sport even even football <coughs> uh, Phil, the, the, 30, all, all embracing went, sorry 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 Thirty thousand people went to the new camp the other week to watch wigan and catalans mate exactly how, how many people from that game can follow up and watch rugby league well, there you go. And less is more at the very top level. So if you ally the competitions together and you can get excellence in both halves of the world, but you can see that there is a, a definable link. And I think we, we've spoken about, you know, at some point, a state of origin game played in London would be massive, not only for yeah. the profile of the sport over here, uh, but, but I think there are huge commercial spin-offs for... Uh, the, the origin concept itself to be to be able to take it on the road in that manner, um, and I think your you know your world club challenge is then a natural extension of that, and you could yeah. look to take it to places like America because that is a halfway house, particularly if you've got North American teams playing in the um, in the actual competitions themselves. But I'm not sure that anybody, and I, and I don't know if this is the preserve of the international federation. Um, I, I don't know if there is a uh, an entrepreneur who will put so much money into the sport that, that you know, we, we've just seen in rugby union over here that there is a public equity company who put in a huge amount of money to buy the rights to things like the domestic championship. Well, one thing they're going to do is want a return on their investment. That's why they're an equity company. And they're going to tell uh, the sport exactly how they want it to look over the next few years. So they're not going to come in on day one and say, we want that team, we don't want that team, we want this competition played then and we don't want that competition. And But what they'll do is, if they're providing all the money, 
that more more and more likely is they will shape what that competition looks like and they'll eventually buy into the international dimension of it and um, that's what you know that, that's the way that professional sport is whether we like it or not now if we could do the same if we could find a, a global investor or a, a group of people that could uh, perhaps be beyond uh, just the, I don't know, the politics of club rugby league to say this is the blueprint for how the sport will look in five or ten years' time. I think you'd sell that overnight to a major broadcaster and mm. that you would have the first global, in inverted commas, competition because I think the one thing we all agree on is why do, why do we even speak to each other on a regular basis? Because we actually think the product's pretty good and that it should be transferable to anywhere in the world. And when people watch a, a really good game, we, we, we were very lucky last week because we saw a women's uh, Challenge Cup final and two men's semi-finals, which over the course of six or seven hours encapsulated everything that was great about the sport. There was something in every game that told a brilliant narrative and that even if you didn't particularly know or understand or, or, or have an affili affiliation with rugby league, if you watch most of that, you would have you would have admired it and enjoyed it and thought where can I get a bit more of it? I don't need to um, necessarily support a team, but I, I want more of this sport. I believe Freddie Mercury is one of the best singers that has ever. Well, enough. I was watching a documentary on him only last night. <laughs> I think his voice is amazing. Was amazing. Is amazing. Whichever way you want to look at it, the fact of the matter is, if he only sung in the wagon and ho on horses. Yeah, <laughs> yep. his voice would never have got known. The fact of the matter is, he was publicised in a certain way. That's the difference. It's the yeah. It's the it's the carrier. It's the carriage. It's the if you like, it's the drone that the pizza flies on. You know, like it's the that's that's what makes the difference. Now, at the right at the start of this conversation, Phil, you said that um, one of the reasons that was given for the RFL losing money was the Challenge Cup. Yeah. Is it fair to say, and you will tell me if it isn't, that one of the reasons the Challenge Cup is starting to fail, because it is, that semi-final that you spoke about last week, my dad was at that game and said it was half empty for the vast majority, or very mm. empty. Um, is, it, is it because that is still a 19th century model? That, that we're trying to work to is, is, is that the problem phil there's two things for me um one is and this is going to be rectified the timing could not be worse um they moved the final to the final bank holiday weekend in august it is traditionally yeah. a weekend where most people are on holiday because it's the final time before the kids go back to school the yeah. transport network is appalling you know even the the east coast main railway line have, has already said there'll be no trains running this particular year because they're doing all their maintenance so i think that logistically um to put it on the weekend they have is a disaster one of the things that yeah. kept that going as as an event and, and let's face it all we talk about all the time is events and we need more events mm. um it used to be people by uh, uh, school kids but also fans of every club you used to walk down mm -hmm. Wembley Way and I'm not playing the nostalgia card but you used to walk down Wembley Way and see the shirts of every club um, and because it was it was felt to be the culmination of a social day out for the sport um, when you have it outside of school time you're not getting any any kids going so I think that's the first thing and it is moving back to July from next year so that should help I think the other thing is that the romance has gone 
um, since we went to full-time professionalism in 1995, yep. the likelihood of a part-time team ever getting far enough in that competition to have um, a, a romantic notional Featherstone once won the cup against Hull with 12 of the players from the town and, and the, the, the guy <laughs> who was, was ostracised came all the way from York have gone mm-hmm. you know you are we we have got st helens and warrington playing in the uh, in the the challenge cup final they are the two top teams in super league at the moment um and there is an absolute possibility they could also meet each other in the grand final the romance has gone and i think any cup competition has got to have that element of you start off in a in a park as your local community club side and you could aspirationally get to play Wigan at Wembley. Now, that never happens. But what what's sort of happened in, in soccer over here is that their FA Cup final has still retained that element of romance, mainly because the, the top teams don't play their full teams in the earlier rounds. Because I look at it in a slightly different way. I think there's a lot of sports that are still stuck in the 19th century mould. So the FA Cup is very much an eight, uh, 20, early 20th, late 19th century cup. The Challenge Cup, the same thing, and blah, blah, blah. I think a 19th century approach is starting your season and ending your season 10 months later. I think yeah. um, people are less likely to commit to things like season tickets and the like now because there's more distractions in their yeah. lives. And I think... You know, you said that the romance is gone. Well, I think what you do when the romance is gone is you start looking for a different relationship. <laughs> like, yeah. I think, and I think we need to think laterally. Yep. Well, I, I, think, I think we but... need to think completely differently. It might, it might be that the Challenge Cup takes place in the middle of the season to break it all up and it's just one round after the other, after the other, after the other. Well, I, well, I think, be... again, go, going back to logistically, one of the issues is that there's nine weeks between the quarterfinal and the semifinal. You can build no interest about... You can imagine if, if you were playing tennis at Wimbledon and, you know, the quarterfinals took place on a Saturday and the semifinals were three weeks following it. You, yeah. you just wouldn't have any continuity. So I think that that's a major issue. I think the, the other thing is that um, we now have a, 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 a real division over here between those who are full-time and those who are part-time. Yeah. And the, the first um, the first sop to that we've seen this year is the 1895 Cup, which is for clubs who are predominantly part-time clubs, and they end yeah. up playing at Wembley alongside the Challenge Cup final. Now, we've still got some issues to, to iron out with that to do it properly, and one of those is having a short enough season to get all these games in because a lot of those have been played in midweek, which which hasn't suited. But but we've now got Sheffield and Widnes playing at Wembley on the on, well, I was going to say on the undercard, but they're actually playing after St Helens. Yeah, the after well, that, that gets the community back together. You're going to get at least I think Widnes sold in the first day of ticket sales this week two and a half thousand tickets. Well, already that's probably two and a half thousand people that wouldn't go and watch Warrington and St Helens. So there are ways of doing it, but I think you've you just you've got to be realistic and play with the cards that are in your hands, not with the ones that you think were there fifty years ago. Now, if the Challenge Cup was the Super League Cup, 
then I think, you know, and, and added in were, were full-time teams like Toronto, who are, who don't play in it at all at the moment because the, there's such a, a hefty price put on their participation in, in case they get to the final that they don't bother entering in the first place. Toulouse don't enter for the same reason. Catalan nearly didn't uh, enter to to uh, try and defend their trophy because they were asked to pay a bond on the back of their only being 50,000 there last year. If you're going to in- introduce all of those stipulations, then you're destroying what you've created. Um, yeah. If you want to have a cup competition, it has to sit in the right part of the season and each each section of it has to include uh, teams that can genuinely win it, I think. And, and at the moment, if you're battling, it's a distraction. I, I remember this year, Le- Leeds have been particularly poor this year, which is a team I... I cover more than any other. Um, but they played Workington, who were a League One team in the first round of the Challenge Cup, beat them by more than 70. On the back of that, not just that result, but a couple of weeks later, they sacked their coach. They're now currently sitting virtually outside the playoff spots in League One. Now, I'm not saying that that one game did them harm, but it certainly didn't do them any good. And why would you enter a competition where it might distract from what your actual reason for wanting to play the season is? So I, I, I think you're right. We need to look at, is it a 19th century concept? But actually, a, you know, a cup competition with a prestigious final at Wembley that's on terrestrial television is worth keeping. It's just how does it fit in the current format? I, I just think the 19th century formats is one that survived, and that's soccer, that's Premier League soccer. And What's think, really interesting, though, is they're talking the, about, again, creating a European Super League. Yeah, they're, they're moving into the 21st century. Um, but ultimately, I think 19th century, I think what I'm talking about is that week-to-week grind. I think a lot of other sports that have really adapted to the 21st century have short, sharp bursts of activity. Yeah. So, for example, the, the World Cup in cricket wasn't a great example. It was a long one. But even yes. so, it allowed people to have six weeks where they concentrated on quick cricket. What we yeah. have around the world is an IPL, a big bash, and X, Y, Z. Um, rugby sevens is another example. I think, I, th- I think what I mean by the 19th century is the shorter attention spans that that is now common in our commentary that people have um yeah you know if me and you if you and i wanted to find something out 30 years ago 20 years ago we would have to sift through a textbook and we'd have to find we'd have to read 10 pages to find the one paragraph that we need now what we can do is we can google the keywords yeah um if your car breaks down phil you're probably as good with cars as i am you <laughs> wouldn't have a scooby-doo what's going on under the bonnet of your car but you can feasibly and and realistically go on YouTube and find something that can resemble the problem that you've got and potentially fix it. And I think we've we've got an industry now that is still creaking around in the 19th century and the 20th century. I'll, I'll be kind and say the 20th century, but it needs to come to the 21st century. Yeah, um, well... And all these notional ideas of, you know, global competition, I, I think that that is the only way you're going to survive because I, I look mm. at some fantastic sports over here that, again, I wouldn't say I was a devotee of, but were clearly on the public conscious. Things like Speedway, which when yeah. I was growing up, you, you could watch on television on a regular enough basis to say, I don't really need to know who the, the world champion is, but if it's on for 
half an hour or 40 minutes, I'll watch it because it's exciting. And uh, I can remember going to, to Odsall, the, the, the home, the cavernous hole that is the home of the Bradford Bulls, and, and even watching Speedway purely on the back of the fact that I'd seen it on television. There's no space for Speedway anymore. No. Um, because it, 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 was, it was such a small, insular sport that... Even though it was the, the there were races in in Poland, it was very big, and in Scandinavia, it never embraced the idea that it needed to be more than a wet Monday night in Coventry. And we we <laughs> could go along that road if we're not careful. That um, yeah. we have to work together to decide. I think it's an identity issue more than anything. What where where does rugby league sit in the modern twenty first century? And if it's a game that's played in an economically deprived part of the north of England and if it's played down the eastern seaboard of Australia and that's the maximum it can be that's fine but you know we have to take the resources that that go with that if we genuinely think it can be bigger and better and played anywhere in the world to a standard and can be given some support without a huge influx of commercial money to make it thrive a little bit more we need to find the wherewithal to do that and we, we you know the hard yards are that we never have um but somebody needs to take that on board and say, because you're right about the fact that everything is accessible instantaneously, there are no borders anymore. Where can my listeners listen to you for the next couple of weeks, Phil? Oh, uh, they, they can. Uh, we're just putting together the, the new issue of 4020 magazine, which will be out in a fortnight. So uh, on the, the 4020 uh, Twitter feed, you, you'll probably see bits and pieces. 4020 Live on a Monday night still goes out. I, I have to keep Gary Schofield in check and uh, we'll, be, <laughs> we'll, we'll, be do, we'll be doing other um, post-match interviews and things from there. So, uh, yeah, if you follow 4020, uh, we, we're never too far away. Yeah, follow 4020 or else I'll disown my listeners. <laughs> Phil, as always, I love talking to you. It's been great. Um, so do the fans. They all want us. Um, you take care and I'll see you in a fortnight. Absolutely, will do. Take care, bud. And you. Go. Thanks for listening to that extended interview with Phil Kaplan. Let me know what you think of that format. Um, we'll have some other interviewees next week. Um, we've still got loads of people that we can interview, and we're just trying to mix it up a little bit. Let us know what you think. Admin at rugbyleaguecoach.com.au is the email address. Instagram and Facebook at rugbyleaguecoach. And, of course, our website, rugbyleaguecoach.com.au. Um, enjoy your rugby league. Keep doing what you're doing, doing those hard yards. You're doing a great job. See you soon.